So, uh, as Chris just opened up for me, we are starting the three-week series on the paradoxes of Christmas that he just introduced, but first I need a little bit of help from the crowd, so I'm going to start off asking, open for uh, answers, name some great musicians slash bands slash artists, any of that, and tell me why. Bon Jovi, why? How did I know my mom was going to answer that? Juice World. What makes them great? Speaks to the heart. All right, anybody else? NF. Why NF? He's real. Okay. Some more? Okay, why? Sounds great. Okay, any other ones? The Beatles? Why are the Beatles great? What? Okay. Okay, so what you're telling me is different things. Uh, it could be performance-related. Uh, they speak to the heart. They are good-looking, if you go by what my mom says. <laughs> uh, just great at what they do. And we look at these artists, and we say this, and these bands and musicians, and we love them, and listen to their music all the time, and we look at them as great. We look at them as awesome. And so... That's going to kind of lead us into the first point of the fact that the way that culture defines greatness. And we often, we glorify uh, things for being bigger and better than the way other people do them. And just as you guys all told me the different things of what makes um, a musician or a band great, uh, we go off of those and we, we judge each person kind of has their own way of looking at it, but culture altogether kind of looks at greatness the same way. And, uh, for example, we glorify basketball players for scoring the most points. Or some of you, I know it's uh, playoff season for fantasy football, so you're glorifying the players that have the most points for that, getting you the most points to win the league and all the money in it. Uh, but we define these as great players because... They're putting out the points that we want to see from them. They're helping our team win the game. Uh, like I said, we, we praise people for doing things bigger and better than everyone else. Uh, say you weren't invited to a wedding, but you see on social media that it was this awesome wedding. The food was great. Uh, everything went smoothly. Everything went according to plan. And we look at that on social media and we're like, even though I wasn't invited, that, that looks like a pretty great wedding. And the people there will tell you that it was a great wedding or any of that. And uh, doing these things for the fame and the praise is often what culture says is great. If they get a lot of praise from doing it, if they look like a more famous person, they look like they did a good job on the wedding, the planning, whatever it was, we look at them and say, they're pretty great. Culture often defines greatness under really three main categories. And the first of these is production. So we look at how well the person or the company or business or whatever produces things for us to consume. How great is it that Apple puts out these products for us to consume, and I mean, we love them. There's millions sold on 
on the first day that the phone comes out, the new phone, and we say, that's a pretty great phone, the camera's awesome, all the apps work perfectly, the software is amazing. And we look at that and say, that's a production that they make that is just great. And we look at what are they providing us? What are we getting out of it? What are we saying makes it great? We're the ones to judge whatever they put out if it's great or not. Second thing is performance. We look at, like I said with the fantasy football players and the basketball players, we look at how well are they doing their job? Are they efficient in what they're doing? Are they putting out, once again, something for us to consume, whether it's entertainment or really just how well they perform, and we get entertained by that and we define them, once again, as great. We look at what awards they've won. Um, a lot of these musicians and stuff, you really wouldn't look at them and say they're great if they haven't won awards for multiple things. If you haven't really heard of an artist and you're like, mm, I haven't seen them on any of the award shows for nominations or anything, they can't be that great. Third and final thing is fans. We look at how many fans they have because of what they're doing. Sometimes I'll play a song in the car for my friends when we're just uh, chilling out to some music and on the way to school or whatever it is. And if they haven't heard of that artist, you know, they're a little bit skeptical at first. They're like, eh, I mean, I'll give it a shot, but I haven't heard of them, so I don't know how great this song is going to be. You know, we haven't heard of these artists, so they, if they don't have a lot of fans, how great can they really be? They would have been well known by now if they're that great. Uh, look at Bon Jovi, the Beatles, all these that you guys mentioned, they all sounded familiar to everyone in here, I'm sure. Because there's a lot of fans out there, and you hear people talking about the Beatles or Bon Jovi or Juice World or anybody all the time because they have a lot of fans. Uh, Rachel Rogers, an associate professor in the Department of Applied Psychology, defines the way that Western culture uh, looks at greatness as a value on production, like the first thing I mentioned. The Western culture puts a lot of value on how well they can produce things for us to consume. Uh, LeBron, LeBron James, we look at him and say, he's great. Often people argue that he's the greatest of all time. And why do they say that? Well, he's producing for the team. Look at the Lakers right now. They're number one in the conference. And uh, we look at them and say, LeBron James is great. He's helping out his team. He's leading the league in assists right now, actually. And we look at him and say, he's great for the team. He's great for the NBA. He's the greatest of all time. And it's defined on how well he produces. Look at Steve Jobs. He was innovative. He was inspiring for a lot of people. You know, he built his company from the ground up with the help of some other people. We look at him we look at him and say he was a great man who had a good plan, he was innovative, he was inspiring, he knew how to get the job done, he was intelligent. And we say he was a great company leader, right? Um, Warren Buffett, he, was, he is great with money, he is 
he knows how to play the system. He's great with dealing with that side of the economy. And we look at the, all these people, Steve Jobs, LeBron James, the way that Rachel Rogers defined greatness on production, and we say, now that's great. They're the greatest at what they do. And that leads us into culture's game plan to be great. What does culture say that we need to do in order to be great, in order to be like LeBron James, in order to be like Steve Jobs, in order to be like Warren Buffett? How do we go about doing that? Well, they basically break it down, culture breaks it down into really four major things. The first thing being work hard. You have to work hard to achieve your goals. You have to push even when it gets tough. You have to fight to get to your goals. There's a Thomas Edison quote, says genius is 1% inspiration 99% perspiration. So once again, reinforcing the idea that Thomas Edison, uh, we look at him and say he was a great inventor uh, of his time, and we even still use a lot of the things that he invented today. And you know, you hear that name and you're like, he was a great, great inventor. And he's gonna tell us right here that just like a lot of culture tells us, is it's about working hard. And that's how you're gonna achieve your goals, is by working hard. The second thing, honing your craft. You have to, it, this incorporates with working hard, you have to keep fighting. Uh, look at Michael Jordan, I'm sure most of you know the story that he was denied varsity, and then he finally, he came back, he worked harder, and he honed his craft, and he came back and he's often considered one of the greatest players of all time as well. And it's because he took the time. He owned his craft. The third thing, they're gonna tell you to run over anything in your path. If anybody, the haters are getting down on you, just push them to the side and keep your eyes on the main prize. Run over anybody in your path. Don't worry about them, it's about you. It's about you going to get your goals you've said that you wanted to do since you were a child. So run over anything in your path. The final thing they're gonna tell us is that it's all within us. Even if you say that you can't, I mean, it's all within you, you're the one doubting yourself. And that's, that's what culture's gonna tell us. They're gonna tell us that it's about your outlook on it. If you think that you're gonna get to your goals, you're gonna get to your goals. You could be the greatest if you wanna be. It's all within you. It's up to you to make that decision whether you wanna be great or not. And that'll lead us into the Bible's definition of greatness. If you guys wanna flip with me, there's uh, Bibles underneath your chair. You can go on the Bible app on your phone. Uh, go to BibleGateway.com, Bible Hub. But if you wanna flip with me to Matthew 20, Flip with me to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 28 here. It'll be up on the board as well. Matthew 20. Starting in verse 20, we're going to go to 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. 
She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine that sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to read that last one again, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, he's going to say here, he's, he's, he's already, we're going to look at, we're looking at the Bible's definition of greatness. He's already pointing the glory to the Father, to his Father in heaven. They're asking to sit at the right and the left of God. And God's saying, that's not, or Jesus is saying, that's not within my authority to tell you guys that. And he's pointing the glory to his Father. He's already giving us a definition that's different than what culture is going to tell us. Already we're starting to see this. He's pointing the glory to his father. He's saying, it's not about me. That's not my authority to give, even though he is the one overall. He's pointing the glory to his father in heaven. And so we also, we see the paradox like Chris was talking about. In the Christmas story, greatness is found in humility. If you want to flip with me again, uh, we're going to go to Luke 1. Luke 1, verse 26 through 33. We're going to be looking at the Christmas story here. Luke 1, verse 26 through 33. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be, What? great. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So look at the weakness that we see in this story, guys. Jesus is coming down to a broken world. He's coming down from a kingdom in heaven where he had everything. He's living amongst us, coming down to this broken world to establish a kingdom for us. Once again, he did not come to be served, but to serve, as it says in Matthew 20, verse 28. He is living amongst us to serve us and to establish a kingdom here on earth, leaving the comfort of heaven. He had power over everything in heaven 
And now, he's coming down to this broken, sinful world, an evil world, and establishing a kingdom here, giving up the comfort, his power, becoming vulnerable in this moment. Jesus is, once again, look at verse 32, 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Before Jesus is even born, he's already, it's already established that the glory is going to go to the Father in heaven. It's not about Jesus. It's about him pointing to the Father in heaven. And Jesus goes about doing this in many ways. He, he constantly, anytime he does something, he doesn't take the credit for it. He says, no, nah, I mean, it was awesome what I did, but that's not about me. That's about my Father in heaven. In this moment, he's also, he's thinking about Mary. He's thinking about bringing honor to Mary, really. He's, Mary's enduring a lot of shame in this moment. Virgin Mary and out of wedlock, having a child. The amount of shame, guys. Now, it's hard for us to understand because in today's culture, we often don't look at it as that big of a deal for people to be uh, married out of wedlock or pregnant out of wedlock. But in this time, that's a lot of shame that Mary is going through and Joseph. And their family is just, it's already a shame-filled family that Jesus is entering into. And so Jesus in this moment is going to, he's going to bring honor to Mary's name. He is the son of God. And he's going to point the glory to God, but he's also going to say, hey, look at Mary. Look at what a good woman she's been. And you guys were shaming her. You guys were shaming her. He's going to bring not only honor to Mary, but honor to all women in this moment. He's going to look at the women and say, hey guys, all you men out here think that you're doing all this great work. I mean, even if you are, you're not giving enough credit to the women here. And he's bringing honor to all women in this moment, not only just Mary. And he's thinking about Israel. He's thinking about saving Israel in this moment. And he's coming to serve us. He's coming to serve and to save. He's going to die on a cross. He's saving the name of Israel. Everything that Israel stands for, he's saving them. He's also thinking about saving the Gentiles in this moment, those outside of Israel. And guys, when we're talking about the Gentiles, he's talking about us. He's not only saving the people in Israel, but he's going out and he's saving the people beyond Israel, out in the rest of the world. And so he's also saving us in this moment. He's thinking about us. Jesus, the, name, the meaning of Jesus is a savior to his people, not the greatest king or the greatest to ever live. No, the meaning of Jesus Jesus is a savior to his people. He's come to serve and to save. Keeps reinforcing Matthew 20, verse 28. What Jesus is teaching us is that 
Greatness is found in ways that we think of others. It's found in ways that we put others above ourselves. But most importantly, it's about pointing the glory to God. Greatness is found in him. And it's putting others before ourselves, but overall, putting the glory to God. I've heard that some of you guys have been giving needy families gifts this Christmas. And that's, that's awesome to hear. Uh, doing God's work for his glory. Giving gifts to needy families, children who need them, children who just want to see a gift this Christmas and feel the love and compassion of others. They crave it. Even though they may not realize it, these children are craving that. And even a simple gift is an awesome way of showing the light of Christ. And maybe they'll understand that down the line, and I'm sure that the parents of those children also understand. And that's, that's awesome, guys. Keep it up. Uh, I, I want us to think about how can we be the light of Christmas this season? How else can we go about doing this? We, we need to be there for others, guys. And just being there for others, hearing them out. Maybe you need to go have dinner with a widow. And just empathize with them. Understand what they're going through. Relate to them, guys. Be the light of Christ by just simply being there for them. Whether you bring up the idea of God or not, your love and your representation of who Jesus wants us to be as good as it is, is great. So just learn what, learn what the widow is going through. Understand how bad they're hurting. And go through it with them. Let them know that you're there for them, that they, you're there anytime they need to talk about something. How can we also honor our family and those around us? Our close friends, our church family. How can we honor them and show the love of God to them, guys? How can we go about doing that? Maybe some of you uh, parents in the room. Maybe you need to teach your kids this Christmas season that it's not just about receiving gifts, guys. And although it may be hard for them to understand, show them that the love of God is what it's all about. The love of Christ and the compassion and the mercy that he has. Show them that it's not just about getting cool gifts under the tree on Christmas or the weekend before Christmas when you go out of town with family. Show them that it's not just about that, guys. That the true gift is the gift of Jesus. And teaching your kids this, that's humility, guys. However, the unfortunate truth about humility is the enemy within that we often, we often miss. But it's in our lives a lot. And it's pride. Now you think about 
pride, you think, oh, I'm proud of my son. I'm proud of my daughter. They're doing such great things in life. I'm proud of myself for getting the promotion on my job. But really, when you're talking about the actual essence of pride, it's a very dangerous thing. And it's dangerous because it finds ways to sneak itself into our religious lives. And it can be really close to our heart, and we may not even realize. And a lot of people, prideful people, when they hear the term pride, they often think, oh, that's not about me. I don't, know, I don't need to listen to this portion. And that right there is going to tell you that you're prideful. It's the enemy within us, guys. Pride can often be misconstrued with greatness. We often look at, once again, how proud you are of something, and we think that's pretty great to be proud of myself, right? But the truth of it is, pride is the root of all evil. It's the root of all sin. All other vices... Uh, envy, um, you know, jealousness, all these things, all the, other, all the other vices that we're taught that in Christianity are things to avoid are all rooted in pride. It's thinking that we're better than God. Thinking that we know more than God. Thinking that, I mean, this sin, I mean, I know that I'm sinning, but I'm just going to do it a couple more times because I know a little bit more than God when it comes to this. It's going to be best for me in the outcome. God's plan will work itself out in the end. But I know that it really isn't that bad. You're making a statement that you know more than God in this moment. Prideful people are saying, hey, we don't really need to get in our Bible all the time, we, we can go about living our own life. We know a little bit more than God does. He's not on the earth here with us. Pride also constantly compares you to others. It's a constant comparison of being better than another person and constantly thinking that you're better than someone else or Maybe the other person is better than you, but you envy them for that. Instead of feeling happy for them, you want to be the better one. You want to make more money than, you, than they do. You want to get the promotion that you really deserved, even though they got it. It's a constant comparison, guys. That's what pride is. It's thinking that not only are you better than God, but you're better than everyone else here. It can often often be the opposite as well. The thinking that you're just a speck of dirt, and although that sounds good in theory, when you're just putting yourself down all the time, and you're constantly saying, I'm nothing compared to you guys. You guys are just so great. I'm horrible. It's the other extreme of it, guys. That's prideful as well. Pride is, I'm sure you guys know how the devil became the devil. Pride is at the root of that. The devil is saying, I am better. I know more 
than God. It's a complete anti-God state of mind. That's what pride is. It's the evil that is within us that often comes in the way of our religious life. And half the time we don't even realize it. For me, all this week and even right now, I feel pride in me because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, how can I have this good message? I don't want people to just look at me and say, oh, it's a 17-year-old. He's just speaking about whatever. And I keep thinking about myself in this moment. I keep thinking, how can I get the best message across to the whole crowd? When deep down, I should be thinking, God is the one who's going to say what he wants to say to you guys this morning. God is the one who's going to speak through me. The words are going to come out the way that he wants them to come out. And so I've been struggling with that. I, I find myself prideful. And I've been asking God to help me with that, but I'm just as nervous this morning as I have been for any other sermon that I've done. And that's the pride within me, guys. And I hate to admit it, but I'm just worrying about how well are people listening to my sermon. If I look out and I see people falling asleep, I think, is it really that bad? Am I that boring? Maybe they just didn't get enough sleep last night. But pride is going to make me think that it's about me, that I'm not doing a good enough job up here. When it's not my word that's being spoken, it's God that's speaking through me, and he's going to say what he wants to say this morning. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it best. I'll put some quotes on the board for you. C.S. Lewis, how is it that people obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God? and appear to themselves very religious. I'm afraid it means they're worshiping an imaginary God. That's a scary thought, guys. C.S. Lewis is saying that if you appear religious, but you're eaten up with pride yourself, the Bible's going to tell us that you're worshiping an imaginary God. Look at the second quote. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. That's tough, guys. Like I said, pride is in our religious life a lot of times, and it's hard to realize it, but when you start thinking about it, God's convicting you of these things, and he's saying... You got a lot of work, bud. You got a lot of work to do. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. That quote just really hit me, guys. It's just, the Bible is going to tell us the complete opposite of the way that a lot of us have been living. We've been worrying about ourselves. We've been comparing ourselves to others. We've been saying we are better than God. We know more than God because... I don't really feel him here with me all the time, so I think I know what's going on in this situation. You know, that, and pride is, pride is the enemy within us, guys. Uh, what I want to do before I continue on is 
let's just have a moment of silence, guys. Let's just sit and be still before God. Ask him to help you think about others over yourself, guys. Ask him to convict you of your prideful moments. And before I continue on, let's just have a moment of silence before God, guys. So maybe you guys need to do this more. Maybe we need to have these moments this week. Have these moments asking God to convict us of our prideful moments, to turn them around and point the glory to God and put others before ourselves. Stop comparing ourselves, guys. Stop questioning whether you're better than another person because of how much money you make, because you think you deserve the promotion because of any of these things. Maybe for some of you teenagers and younger kids, you think that you deserve the starting spot on that team, whether it's a basketball team. You want to be in the front of the cheer squad. Any of these things, you're saying, I think I'm better than that person. I think I deserve it. It's pride, guys. If you want to flip with me one last time to Luke 2, we're going to be looking at Luke 2, verses 4 through 7. Continuing the Christmas story. Luke 2, verse 4 through 7. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Guys, look at the way he was born. In a manger. It was really just an ordinary birth. They didn't even have another place to stay, guys. The shame that their family carried with them likely denied a denied them of other places to stay. Even their own family likely rejected them because of the shame that their family carried. And so, he's showing weakness in this moment, guys. Jesus was born in a manger. It was just an ordinary birth. There wasn't a ton of people around. Not a whole lot of people knew about it. As far as we know, it was just Joseph and Mary there. Remember how we defined greatness as earlier? We said it was a big performance. It looked great. They're touching to the heart. And although birth, birth is an amazing thing, Jesus' birth really doesn't fit those guidelines. It really doesn't fit the guidelines of the way culture looks at greatness. Born in a manger? It's kind of lame. If you, that's, the, that's the way that culture is going to look at it. And when you look at our comparison of greatness compared to the way that Jesus is born, the sinless one, 
you wouldn't think that it would be such an ordinary birth. And that's not the way that we would look at greatness. And this is the way that Jesus in the Bible is telling us to look at greatness. It's not always about being flashy, doing things for a bunch of fame, a bunch of praise. It wasn't a spectacular birth. Jesus was vulnerable as well. Uh, we look at later in the story, King Herod uh, chases, he has men chased down to kill all men, all boys, two years old or younger. So Jesus, in the first two years of his life, was already being tracked down to be killed. And his parents had to escape with a child to Egypt. He's vulnerable in this moment, guys. Jesus is wanting, they are wanting the death of Jesus. And they have to escape. Already in the first two years of his life, Jesus is showing weakness. He's showing, showing vulnerability. So guys, what would it look like to embrace our weakness this Christmas season? What would that look like? To look at ourselves and say, I'm not that great. And it's not necessarily thinking about yourself as so lowly, because then you start getting into, once again, pride. But just not thinking of yourself as much. And how can we embrace our weakness? And that'll lead us into the next point, that humility shows us greatness is found in weakness. The paradox. Greatness is found in weakness. Jesus showed humility through his birth. Once again, he was born in a manger. Nobody knew about it, really. He's showing weakness in this moment. He's showing... It doesn't have to be done up that great. It doesn't have to be that flashy. Jesus was circumcised when he was born. He's being brought down to human. Not only is he coming to this broken world, but he's getting circumcised just as everyone else is. He's being brought down to human form, even though he was above all. He becomes obedient to the law of Moses. They place a sacrifice for him, for the newborn child. And throughout his life, Jesus is going to follow the law of Moses. That's the crazy thing about it. He had handwritten the law of Moses. He created it. And now, he's being put down on the earth, being obedient to it. To, to the law that he created. He shows us... Jesus shows us humility through service. Once again, he was put on this earth to serve and to save us. Dying on a cross, the most shameful way, carried his cross, the weight of his burdens, people laughing at him, mocking him, beating him. He was filled with shame, guys. He's showing weakness. He became a savior for us, serving us. Jesus showed us that greatness is found in weakness, although we looked at the way that culture defined greatness, this isn't the way that the world is going to tell us is great. Dying on a cross in front of everyone doesn't sound too great. And culture is going to tell us 
many different ways that we defined earlier of how things can be great in other people's eyes. Doing it to look cool for other people. Doing it for praise or fame. Jesus came into the world with no political power. Once again, a shame-filled family. There was doubt about who he was. People were already proclaiming that he was going to be the son of God. And then he comes there and people are already doubting if he really is who everyone's saying that he is. Is who he says that he is. And even more weakness, he became a servant. He wasn't the one being served, although everyone's saying that he is the son of God. He is the one being the servant, serving others. He doesn't have a bunch of people running out and doing things for him. He's the one at the hands and feet of God doing his work, serving other people. And so that'll lead us into the final point of humility through Embracing limits. Embracing limits. That's a tough one, guys. We, we often do too much. We try to do a million things. We don't say no to people when we really should. And we find ourselves overextended and exhausted in that moment. We're trying to go to meetings while also spending time with family. Right now, it's hectic during this Christmas season. We're trying to go to all of our family Christmases while also maybe going to our work party, uh, making food. We overextend ourselves. We aren't embracing our limits. Jesus, once again, took human form. He is embracing his limits by literally becoming dependent on Mary. He's being breastfed by Mary, a woman that God created. He is brought down to human in this moment, and he is dependent on her. He will die of starvation if he is not fed. He's been He's becoming dependent, and he's embracing the limits that were given by his father. Like I said, we find ourselves overextended and exhausted when we don't embrace our limits. We often get burnt out by trying to give what we don't have. Like I said, trying to be to three different parties in one day while also making food for all three of them. Then you end up just bringing plates. We often find ourselves burnt out by trying to give what we don't possess. We also don't have all the spiritual gifts that we may want. We may want to be really good at teaching. But God limited us as a gift. We may only have a couple spiritual gifts that, eh, they're all right, but I don't really know how I'm going to go about using them. But Really, guys, God limited us as a gift. Maybe it would be too much for you if you had these other gifts that you may want. God has given you this life, given you this path of actions, given you these spiritual gifts in order to limit you. 
because he knows that we are humans, we are fragile. We'll become burnt out, overextended, exhausted if we try to do too much. As far as we know, Jesus did not perform any miracles the first 30 years of his life. He was embracing the limits given by his father. First 30 years of life, guys, as far as we know, no miracles were performed. He was just living in an ordinary family as a carpenter, doing what every other boy was doing. He was embracing his limits, embracing human form when he was above all. Uh, for me personally, I, throughout middle school and even my first couple years of high school, uh, I mean, I was doing pretty good in school. I got straight A's. I was able to keep on top of it, and I pretty much slacked for the most, for the first two years, and then junior and now senior year hits me, and I have to be putting in a little bit more effort. And taking the ACT, I got back the score. Wasn't really happy with it. Uh, the score, uh, it didn't really, wasn't really high enough for me to get into a lot of the colleges that I may have wanted. That I lost a lot of opportunities because of that. But I'm learning to realize that God has given me intelligence in certain areas, but he's limited me in other areas. Obviously, standardized testing is not one of my strengths. <laughs> uh, and so I'm starting to realize that he's limited me, and obviously, maybe I'll retake it in the future, get a higher score, and I'll go to the college that God planned for me to go to. Or I'll stick with the score that I have now, um, go to one of the colleges that have accepted me, and that maybe was the plan for God all along. And I'm learning to try to embrace those limits instead of trying to overextend myself and uh, wonder why I'm not getting the scores on these tests that I thought that I could get. Uh, God gave Adam and Eve limits, and... Spoiler alert, they did not embrace those limits. They, they went beyond God saying, I know more than you. And that didn't turn out too well for them. They, embra they, they didn't embrace the limits that God had given them. God said, one tree that they could not eat from. And they had everything else, but they're like, these limits can't hold me back. I'm going to go ahead and do what I think is best for me, what I think will end up best for me, because I know more than God. Uh, another example, Jesus only had 12 disciples. Uh, he was limited in that regard. He chose to only have 12. There were a bunch of other people who were probably worthy of being a disciple, a bunch of other people who wanted to be by God's side. But he limited himself to 12. Another example, my dad. 
He hasn't played me in basketball for a couple years, but I think he realizes that he's limited in his age. Can't really, can't really beat me in a 1v1. We haven't played in a while, but I think he's a little bit scared. <laughs> so, other than the age and maybe physical, physical limitations that we may have in different things, uh, there's some other signs in our life that we may not be embracing our limits. And these can be a number of things, but some things I could think of were impatience at simple things. Being impatient that your food wasn't done right at McDonald's for the 50th time. Being impatient that it took you 30 minutes to get a Big Mac. It cracks me up. I used to work at Dairy Queen, as many of you know, and just the amount of animosity and anger that people had when they didn't get their order right. Like, it's food. You're going to eat. You're not going to starve. But because the people back there in the kitchen made a mistake, and we are paying for the food, so we should get good service too, and we want the burger that we want, and we want it right, and people get just super angry about that because they're becoming impatient, and that's, I was going to tell us that that's a sign of us maybe not embracing our limits. We may become impatient at simple things, lines taking too long, traffic. Often we find ourselves rushing or hurrying all the time. Constantly in a rush, constantly feeling we have to do a million things at once, especially this Christmas season. It's one of the most hectic times of the year. A lot of people hate the Christmas season because of how hectic it is. They feel like they have to do a million things in one day and they just don't have enough time, so they're constantly rushing and hurrying. And that can get in the way of our religious life as well. We start skimming over time with God. Skimming over it to even not looking at your Bible. Well, I didn't have time today. Couldn't really squeeze it in. What about the car ride when you could have been listening to music to lift your spirits? Uh, religious music to praise God. What about playing a sermon on your phone? from online, from the thousands that you can access. Well, I'm out of data, so I didn't really want to waste it. Well, what about those 30 minutes that you were at home right before you went to bed just watching TV? Instead, you're constantly rushing and hurrying and not limiting yourself, and you start skimming over time with God. When talking about limits, we also have to learn togetherness through separateness. And what I mean by that is through your marriage, maybe. Learning to have a little bit of distance and find unity through that. Embracing the limits that you guys can't be with each other all the time. Whether it's, like I said, marriage or even your friends, sometimes you need a little bit of time away from them. And embrace the limits that God has given you by maybe replacing that time with 
spending time with God, thanking him for being able to bless you with friends and family that love you. Oftentimes with our church family, we don't want to get too personal, but we start to separate ourselves too much. So that's the opposite of the spectrum when you're talking about togetherness through separateness. You don't want to separate yourself too much, whether it's from your church family, your family, your friends, or even God. We must trust that God has given us limits for a reason. And we all know the saying that it's God's plan. And the idea that it's all, he has a destined path for us. And this goes into embracing limits. Embracing that we may have not gotten the job position that we wanted. We may have not gotten the college that we wanted to get into. We may have not gotten the girl of our dreams, the boy of our dreams. But only time really will help us realize, and also time with God, that God says no for a reason. God has a greater plan, and only time is really going to tell that. And asking God to help you realize that is also a huge step in the right direction. Once again, the spiritual gifts and God telling us other things that we can't do. And we get angry at God for this. We say, why can I not have that? That is what I need in order to succeed. That is what I need to reach my goals. That is what I need to be great. But God said no for a reason, guys. Trust that he did it for a reason. Trust that he has a bigger plan in store for you. I'm going to end it with this. The Tim Keller quote, put it up on the board. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I even used this in the last sermon. I want to read that last part again. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. So ask God to convict us with that this week, guys. Convict us of the times that we're thinking that we are above people. And convict us of the times that we are putting ourselves down constantly, when really that's also prideful. Convict us of the pride that we have throughout the week. And just spend some time with God, guys. Slow it down. I know it can be hectic this Christmas season. Some of you still running for last-minute gifts or anything. Trying to make it to parties on time. Trying to give them gifts. Trying to make food. But just slow down. Embrace the limits that God has given us, or else we'll find ourselves overextended, exhausted, overused. Ask God to help you quit comparing yourself to others. And instead, put the others before yourself and quit thinking about yourself so much. Care about others before yourself. Put them over you. And overall, put God above everything. Whether it's you, other people, 
your family, your friends, your church family. Ask God to convict you of that this week. And ask him to help you put others before yourself. Let's pray. Dear God, I come to you this morning. And I pray that this 